Hello, Giles here. And knowing that we have a family audience and the purple people often include some very young people, just to say that today's episode does include some language that some people may find uncomfortable or offensive. Welcome to a special moment in the history of podcasting. Welcome, in fact, to the 250th episode of Something Rhymes with Purple. My name is Giles Brandreth, and for 250 episodes, I have been co-presenting this podcast with my good friend, who I speak of as the world's leading lexicographer. She is much more modest than that. How would you describe yourself, Susie Dent? What does it say on your passport? <laughs> it does, I don't think I do. We, do we put an occupation on our passport? I don't think I've got one on mine. I don't think we do anymore. When no. I was young, you did. But maybe you don't have to any longer. Well, I can tell you my bio on my social media account says simply that woman in Dictionary Corner, because it would be, you know, like Richard Whiteley used to call himself um, Him Off. Do you remember that was the title of his autobiography, Him Off? Because people would look at him and say, oh, it's Him Off, you know, Him Off, off the telly. So, uh, yeah, I, I've put myself in that category. You've made references there to Richard Whiteley and to Countdown. And so for our international listeners who may not be familiar with either Richard or Countdown, Susie there is referencing a program called Countdown, which was the first program broadcast on Channel 4 in the United Kingdom. And it's a, a game featuring words and numbers. And uh, in Dictionary Corner sits Susie Dent. And she sat there for a <laughs> long time now. And that's how wow. we first met. Do you remember our first meeting? Do you remember what we thought of each other? <sighs> Well, I was still very scared of the whole thing because, of course, I wasn't supposed to be on telly. I just had gone into a publishing job and it just genuinely just so happened that job was part of, a, you know, was in a team who regularly went up to Countdown in order to provide sort of dictionary refereeing. So um, I was still very bemused by the whole thing. So I think I would have looked at you and your jumpers and been slightly in awe and not said a lot. Well, and that I ought to explain to Never changed, people who've really. only listened to the podcast. I am noted for wearing <laughs> jumpers in this country, or sweaters yeah. as they're called in America. Anyway, here we are, five years after we started this podcast, at our 250th episode. And I think the one thing that both Susie and I agree on, without any doubt at all, is that the real joy of this podcast is you, the people mm. who listen to it, that we came to call quite quickly the Purple People. Would you say that's true? Absolutely. And we often talk, don't we, about the live shows that we did, the live recordings of the podcast, where we were so touched. I mean, genuinely, we were both very, we were quite emotional, weren't we, we were. in the wings, because there were just so many loyal listeners. And I think that is going to be uh, confirmed, actually, in our episode. And I'm really looking forward to this one, because we've decided for the 250th to actually include some of the very best purple people and try to answer their myriad emails. And what I also think is going to become clear is just how global, well, global this podcast is, but just how many people we have in different pockets of the world, which is just thrilling, I think. Well, it is thrilling. We have had literally tens of millions of downloads. We are so grateful to you. This is our semi-quincentennial episode. Is that a word? Have I invented that or is that a yes. legitimate word? No, I think that is a legitimate word. There is also sesterocentennial or a quarter millennial. I suppose a quarter millennial is easier, isn't it, to grasp? But anyway, it's a, a wonderful thing. And I would never have guessed, much as I wouldn't have guessed that I'd still be sitting in Dictionary Corner in 30 years at the time, I would never have guessed that we would get to 250. So, yeah, 
very chuffed about that. Uh, hold on, you've just thrown in Sesto Centennial, as yes. though everybody understands what a Sesto is. I mean, I could see my logic with semi quincentennial is that mm-hmm. centennial is a hundred, as in a century. Quin mm-hmm. is from the Latin for five, I assume, and semi is half of five, which is 250. How do you get to 250 from sesta centennial? Sesta centennial. Now, I think this might be an informal term for 250 because I'm just looking up to see whether it is in the OED. Anyone who is new, who's joining us, um, in 2024, we'll know that I regularly tap away on the Oxford English Dictionary. It's not in there, actually, interestingly enough. So, Sesta originally in Old English was a vessel for holding liquid, and it was also a liquid measure for beer and wine and that kind of thing, and for wheat, etc. And I am now just looking up to see... Yeah, so if you take it all the way back to sextary or sextarium... That was anything between about four and six imperial gallons. So I think this might be a movable feast and we can probably apply this number to anything we want to looking at this. But I'm going to stick with quarter millennial because, as I say, I think that's the most transparent one. Well, come what may, this is a celebration. And is there an interesting derivation of celebration? I mean, where does that come from, to celebrate? came from the Romans and celebrare. It also gave us, of course, celebrity, someone who is celebrated. And yeah, nothing, nothing sort of particularly interesting to say, except it's one of the many, many words that we owe to the Romans. And it was all about honour, which, of course, in Roman society was absolutely huge and was a catalyst for many words, such as triumph and rust and so many different words. So, yeah, we have them to thank for celebrations. Well, we are honoured that the Purple People listen and we are thrilled that they've responded to our invitation to send us some questions and queries to mark our uh, quarter millennial. And who are we going to hear from? Who are we going to begin with, Susie? Well, this is very exciting because we actually have a lot of voice notes today. So we not only get to read the words, we actually hear the words from their speakers. So the first one is from Christian Knudsen. Christian, apologies if I haven't got that quite right. He's from Denmark. Dear Susie, and according to my husband, my favourite jiggle mug, Giles. Having just listened to the Santa Claus episode, I'll buy it. What is the origin of Prince Albert's? And from where does Giles know whether or not Prince Albert had one? Kind regards, Christian Knudsen, Rødovre, Denmark. Ah, I love that. Christian Knudsen. Well, thank you, Christian. And uh, just to remind you, Giles, this is from a previous episode where, for some reason, and I really can't remember why, I mentioned a Prince Albert. And I said, is it true? Did Prince Albert actually have a Prince Albert? Which, as most people will know, is a penis piercing. And you very definitively and quite defiantly said, absolutely not. But how do we know? Well, we don't know, do we? We do know that some of his family... I think his sons definitely had, and certainly grandsons, had tattoos because they were visible when they appeared without jackets. Uh, And they were from a naval tradition and tattoos were popular. 
But do you know the origin of the phrase Prince Albert? I just think it's so unlikely. But but we do know that Prince Albert, who was German and who yeah. married his cousin, Queen Victoria of the United Kingdom, we do know from her diaries that they clearly had a very lively private life. Um, mm-hmm. She writes most enthusiastically about their passionate nights together. And clearly, really, the, the, the physical aspects of their marriage seem to be both lively and satisfying, at least from Queen Victoria's point of view. She does indeed speak of her adorable Albert, but whether she's referring to his penis piercing or simply to the man (laughs) as a whole, I do not know. Why is it called a Prince Albert? Well, I think this theory was put about in the early 70s, so quite late, really. The 1970s um, rather than the 1870s. 1970s, yeah. yeah. And um, it was by somebody called Richard Simonton, who was also known as Doug Malloy, and he published a pamphlet in which he apparently concocted quite a few, let's say, fanciful histories of genital piercings. And so we do think that this is apocryphal, and it included the notion that Albert, Prince Consort, invented, well, he didn't invent the piercing, but he had one in order to tame the appearance or or to play down or to hide the appearance of his rather large penis in very tight trousers. So that was what was circulated (laughs) as an urban myth. There is no no historical proof of this, but, you know, such was its appeal to the imagination that actually, you know, that's how how it came about, is thought. I mean, you know, instead of cod pieces, the idea is, but why would a piercing actually... I, I don't know, Giles, you have to tell me this. Well, I think the piercing, the weight of the piercing may have... It would pull you down, may, I may see. have pulled him down. I mean, either this is the explanation of why we have had millions of downloads in our five years, <laughs> or uh, this is going to be the end of people thinking, oh, I thought it was going to be a family, I thought this was a family podcast. Um, yes. And, and we are normally... And it's a, a strange one to open with. We can blame our producer Naya for this one. Well, but, but it is nonetheless a fascinating topic. And it is. And I, I know very little about it until I began what watching uh, the programme Naked Attraction, which was also, like Countdown, on Channel 4, and I think has now ended its run. Thank goodness. I I do remember you talking about this on at least 10 occasions in uh, 2023. Well, at least 10 occasions. I became so obsessed with this programme that, you know, I was invited with the first person that I shared the sofa watching these programmes with, Sheila Hancock. We were invited to go to Leeds to audition for Celebrity Naked attraction. You are kidding, right? You've no. said this before. This well, is absolutely it's absolutely true. true. We both went. We stripped off. So and they offered her the job, and they told me to. Okay, that's not true. That bit is not true. Well, <laughs> I exaggerate, but <laughs> I oh, but I don't exaggerate. When there was an episode where we saw a, a, a gentleman of riper years who had, I mean, not just a Prince Albert, but I mean, he had a Prince George and a Prince Charlie, and a you know, you name it. They were indeed Tom Jones who happened to be watching, the, the singer Tom Jones, uh, yeah. said, my God, that man's got a load of bollocks on his bollocks. I mean, he had so much clutter <laughs> down there. It was incredible. You could imagine if he went wearing this stuff through, uh, tried to board an aeroplane, the security machine well, yes. would have gone berserk with bells ringing all over the place. Well, mine, I have to say, uh, that always happens to me as well. Uh, which is extremely oh, annoying. Do you have intimate piercings? I, I didn't realise. No, I really <laughs> don't. But it's very annoying. But I do wonder 
if people uh, assume this. Anyway, thank you, Christian, for that brilliant episode. And um, episode, you're right. It turned into an episode, but that brilliant (laughs) question, you're right. Um, Question. Yes. Yes. Well, we'll leave it to another week for Susie and I to discuss, unless it's a later question, whether we have any body piercings. I will throw in that I don't. I don't either. No. So there we are. But we have talked a bit about tattoos and what we would do if we had one. But anyway, that's a that's a whole another subject. Um, we now have a voice note from um, one of our listeners. I think um, he's just given us the name Sam. So thank you to Sam for this. Dear Susie and Giles, I'm a relatively recent listener to your podcast and I thoroughly enjoy it. I moved to Nairobi a year or so ago and I've come into contact with a whole host of new collective nouns for animals. Previously, I was aware of the famous ones like a pride of lions, parliament of owls and a murder of crows. I hadn't realised this quirky naming of collective nouns was a thing. The ones I've learned include a tower of giraffes, a cackle of hyenas, a dazzle of zebras, a thunder of hippo, a crash of rhino, a memory of elephants and a coalition of cheetahs. I think they're all wonderful, and these collective nouns seem related to a feature that animals possess. But how have all these collective nouns come to exist? I would love to know. Your avid listener, Sam. Very good. Well, what what do you think? I think for purple listeners, would it be a diaspora of purple listeners? Well, it would be, wouldn't it, in a way? Mm. It's wonderful. We did do uh, an episode, actually, Sam, on collective nouns where you can find a lot more info if you wanted to look in our archive. But just to give you a quick overview. So we tend to think that there are very set and established terms for different groups of animals and that these are codified in the dictionary and they're the ones that we should all use. But like the rest of English, there is no prescription as to what we should call these groups. It is all voted for by democracy and by usage. But the surprising thing about many of these, and I think it's fairly obvious to most of us that they're fairly old, but actually they're really old because a lot of them, including, you know, a gaggle of geese, murmuration of starlings, exaltation of larks, they sprang from the medieval imagination and they surfaced in the Middle Ages. They were written down in books of etiquette that were aimed at instructing noblemen on how to not to embarrass themselves, basically, when out hunting or hawking or fishing or doing any of those aristocratic pursuits. So, it you know, it was, it was the right thing to know the correct term for a group of ferrets, which was a busyness. For hares, that was a flick. For hounds, it was a mute. So, knowing these was actually all part of the etiquette and the sort of underscoring of social status, I suppose. And it marked the gentry out from the so-called peasants. Um, What's also surprising is that there was one primary source for so many of these terms that was uh, born in the 15th century, and it was the Book of St Albans. And we don't know exactly who wrote it, but it's usually attributed to the prioress of um, a nunnery in Hertfordshire, Sopwell Nunnery, and she was called Dame Juliana Berners. Not sure whether it was her or not. It's quite possible that lots of different sources were pulled together in this one compendium. But her work gave us over 160 group names for beasts of the chase, as well as individuals. So individuals who 
strutted the medieval stage. So we had an impertinence of peddlers, for example, peddlers going from house to house trying to sell things and being quite annoying. We had a superfluity of nuns, so-called, because any woman considered a spinster at a probably ridiculous age of around 25 was often sent to a nunnery by their family to avoid social disgrace. And so nunneries became very full. So we have a superfluity of nuns um, and so on. And this book was such an instant hit. It was reprinted over and over and it had, you know, amazing. I think it had some of the first images ever to be printed in colour. And to this day, we still use things like A Murder of Crows or, um, as I say, An Exaltation of Larks. Um, We had other ones, Misbelief of Painters, because portrait artists would often bend the truth, you know, much like modern filters in photographs. They would be very flattering in their um, in their portraits, so misbelief of painters, and so on and so on, and unkindness of ravens. So there are lots that have become lost over time, but so many of them are rooted in those. And of course, we continue to make up our own as well, um, too, which is wonderful. And the one I think I mentioned in our previous episode that always makes me laugh is uh, someone talking about the collective noun for Lego pieces, and it was a foot hurt. Oh, that's nice. Yes, which I quite like. As you know, I'm very into cats, and I think you are too. Yes. And am I right in thinking that the correct collective noun for a group of cats is a clouder of cats? Yeah. CLO. And that, that is correct in the sense it's been around for a long time. Yes, not correct in that it's the only one that you can use. I think I've heard glaring as well. And actually that clouder is probably from a dialect word related to clutter. So the idea possibly is that people again thought there was a sort of, you know, that, that cats were grouped together, which in my experience is not true, and that they could be maybe slightly superfluous. I mean, obviously that's not what we think, but it's definitely, we think, related to clutter. Well, I've heard also people talking about a clutter of cats and a pounce of cats and even a glaring of cats. Yeah, I've heard a glaring. With kittens, yes. is it a, a litter or a kindle? Kindle's lovely. Um, again, you can use either, but kindle is beautiful and it's just got that lovely alliteration as well. So I don't think... Um, yeah, so when a hare or a rabbit gives birth, it kindles. Um, and I think that's related to kind. But other than that, yeah. Wild cats, I've heard called a destruction. But that sounds like one of those invented ones to be vaguely amusing. Mm. Well, there are lots of those. And, you know, there's nothing to say that those are those are correct. There were some really interesting ones in the past that, again, I think we talked about before. So they're all wrapped up in superstition. So they had, for example, not a murmuration of starlings, but a mutation of starlings because it was believed that at some point in their lives starlings lost a leg and then grew one back again which is extraordinary so they tell us a huge amount about life of of the time and can i test you with a couple of ones that i think are quite well known what would you call a a collection of cobras the snake cobras oh i'm really bad at collective nouns don't remind me it's a quiver oh a A quiver quiver of of cobras cobras Cobras. And what about, this is one of my favourites, because I think it can apply to so many things, uh, a group of cheetahs, by which I mean the animal, the cheetah, spelled C-H-W-E-T-A-H-S, as opposed to somebody who is cheating. What is a group of cheetahs? Don't know, tell me. A coalition. Oh, that's interesting. Now, I remember Colin Murray, who presents Countdown, and he's absolutely obsessed with penguins. Now, he says that we actually distinguish between penguins in the water and penguins outside of the water. So penguins outside of the water, unsurprisingly, are called waddles. And I think in the water, I think they might be raft or... 
huddle, possibly. Actually, the huddle would be outside, wouldn't it? That's interesting, because when I went to see the penguins at the zoo, maybe this is a long time ago, they were known as a colony of penguins. There is a colony as well. So, I mean, you can tell that actually... You know that th- these things are quite fluid, and um, as I say, like like the rest of English, it's it's all kind of they're all elected democratically. So use what you want, I would say. Yeah, some's unfair. I think an unkindness of ravens is unfair, whereas uh, a prickle of porcupines seems <laughs> to be spot on. Yeah. Anyway, do I would say um, if anyone's interested, including Sam, do go back to the episode that we did because it was a lot of fun, and I, I remember that. Um, we have to go over to Igor now. Great names today. Oh, great name, Igor. I wonder where he comes from. Hello, Giles and Susie. Serbian fan here. I started listening to your podcast during the recent pandemic. Then I moved to the Netherlands, and I'm still listening to it. English is my favorite language, after Serbian, of course. And I really enjoy learning about different etymologies and also occasionally finding out links to Serbian language as well. For instance, muscle is literally called little mouse in Serbian, which I only found about through the podcast is linked to Latin. I have a question about colors and names. Why in the UK are some colors used as surnames and others are not? I presume ones such as black, white and red are to do with the person's hair color. But if that's the rule, what about surname green then? Grey could be linked to hair color as well, but seems a bit unfair. And why are then other colors not surnames, such as purple? Thanks a lot, and keep up the stellar work, Igor. Brilliant question from Igor then. I know, it is wonderful. And do you know what the answer could be? Well, I was going to say, what I love about questions from uh, people for whom English is perhaps a second or a third language is that they notice things that we as native speakers Mm. don't because we're so immersed in the language. And I absolutely love that. So, yes, it's a kind of slightly complicated answer. But Igor is right. Brown, white and black does usually suggest hair colour. And uh, you have to remember that before surnames came about, which was predominantly after the Norman Conquest, we did used to name people after their personal attributes. That was just a way of um, distinguishing between individuals who had the same name. But it could be clothing as well. Uh, You think of black friars, for example, order of monks who wore black robes. So, you know, there are other things in there as well. And similarly, green, uh, the surname green, that isn't directly necessarily about the colour. It could be about the place. So it could be a topographical pointer because a green for us, of course, is this sort of lovely stretch of grass in a village normally. So it could be that it was somebody who lived by the green. So there are very factors, various factors at play here and it doesn't necessarily all relate to personal appearance. And you'll remember when we talked about names, Giles, that there were some really strange ones like um, Pex, well, not Pecksniff, that's Dickensian, isn't it? There was Sweat in the Bed <laughs> um, and there was Black Mouth. I mean, there were some pretty horrible ones, you know, which, which were all about sort of personal descriptions. So when it comes to other colours, you know, names like Rufus, came about that's from the latin for red that probably referred to hair color but you have reed as well as the surname um that's from scott the scots for red it could have been somebody with red hair could have been somebody with a red ruddy complexion it could have been somebody who liked wearing red although harder to get from natural dyes that one and i think the reason 
And this is just me guessing, Igor. The reason there are not things like purple is obviously, as you say, there's no, not, no hair colour there. At least I don't think anyone in the Middle Ages would have been having purple hair. But, you know, perhaps it was associated with people who were of extremely high social standing. So emperors traditionally wore purple. It is also the colour of royalty, for example. And quite often, no surname was needed or no further indication was needed. Purple, incredibly expensive, um, produced by the dye from, from a mollusk and was always reserved for very expensive, lavish occasions. So I don't think you would find Tom or Sheila on the street. <laughs> I don't know if Sheila existed then, but, um, you know, having purple in their name. But there are a few, you know, exceptions. There is Lionel Blue, Rabbi Lionel Blue, mm. Thomas Pink, the tailor. So there are some, and they will have all come down to choices, habits, personal attributes, but it's very hard you know, centuries on to pinpoint exactly what it was for these individuals. In the room I'm sitting in, we keep a lot of old books. And my wife, many years ago, did a book about first names. And she's got lots of books about first names. And I pulled one of them down simply to look up Igor. And it tells me that Igor is a boy's name, Russian origin, with old Norse roots deriving from the name Ingvar. It's a classic name, perfect, according to this little book, for your little fighter. It means warrior. Igor is short, sweet and strong. And I think his question was quite short, very sweet and certainly strong. Kept us on our toes. Wonderful. So thank you. Thank you, you. Igor. Should we take a quick break before we have some more uh, questions and queries in this, our special 250th episode? I am loving these. Welcome back to the semi-quincentennial, also uh, sesto-centennial, or even quarter-millennial episode of Something Rhymes with Purple, which is dedicated to you, our listeners, the purple people. And who has been in touch most recently? Well, and now we have Neil from Glasgow. We can hear from him too. Hi, Susie and Giles. We badger and nag, hound and bug, when we describe being a pest. How did these animals come to be associated with being pests and how did rodents get away without becoming synonymous with pestering? Are there any other terms that are described so much using one specific group? Thanks for keeping me entertained with your podcasts. Neil from Glasgow. What's the answer to his um, pestilential question? Well, what's quite interesting about these types of verbs that reference animal behaviour is that actually the animal in question is often human because it's about our behaviour towards these animals. So when we badger someone, we're not actually referencing any habits of a badger who, you know, they're nocturnal, um, they are usually quite quiet and rather lovely creatures. I'm sure that they can become fierce if cornered. But The idea of badgering someone actually comes from the horrible so-called sport of baiting badgers with dogs. Mm. And when we hound someone, we are again setting the hounds upon prey. So it is all about sort of human motivation, um, noctically nice ones in those cases. When we snipe at someone, we may well be referencing the bird of the sandpiper family. And just as a hunter hides in the reeds to hunt snipe, so to snipe or being a sniper means to, you know, to sort of get someone from a concealed location or from far away. And the idea when we snipe at someone is that we're doing it in a slightly sideways, you know, just a sort of slightly cunning and conniving way, I suppose. So that's all about human behaviour. But sometimes there is a direct association and quite often they're 
quite obvious, I suppose. So we ferret something out. So ferrets naturally flush out rabbits and other things that are buried underground. Although I'm sure humans get them to do that as well. We squirrel something away, which is lovely, just as a squirrel will hoard nuts for the winter. We repeat something parrot fashion, which of course we know parrots absolutely do. It's called a citicism with a silent P. Or we ape another person. And quite often ape families are shown to imitate each other and other people, you know, humans, in a very sort of wholesale way rather than just verbally as parrots do. We can weasel something out of someone and weasels are very stealthy and so became associated with sneakiness and insincerity and that kind of thing. And we do use rodents a little bit, Neil, because we talk about getting ratty with someone, don't we? Or ratting on someone, which is a bit unfair because, you know, it's understandable that we associate rats with pestilence because of the Great Plague, but actually they can be quite beautiful, very friendly creatures as well. And what else do we have? We've got lots and lots, really. We we have, again, to do with human behaviour, we have the idea of guinea pigs because they were historically used as, as um, objects, sadly, in laboratory research and so on. So I would say that the impetus is a mixture of things, but quite a lot of it does actually go back to human behaviour. Nagging the same nags, old, worn out, jaded horses have never had a very good reputation, sadly. And so they too became associated with something that is sort of unpleasant or derogatory, I suppose. Very good. OK, who, who is who is next, Susie? Next, we have Craig Dealey. So I think this one would be quite simple to answer, but it's a nice one. Hi, Giles and Susie. I love the show. I've listened from the very beginning and even re-listened to old episodes so I can rediscover things that I've forgotten. So my question is Christmas-themed-ish. How come the verb to trim means to cut, but when we talk about trimming the Christmas tree, we add things to it, i.e. decorations? The same as a Christmas dinner with all the trimmings. It's the one meal a year where we're expected not to cut back on anything. Anyway, Merry Christmas, and here's to a purple new year. Best wishes, Craig Daly. Oh, lovely. He's the first to wish us Merry Christmas for 2024, (laughs) and I appreciate that very much indeed. Uh, Well, I mean, tell us, is it because to put on your decorations you do trim the tree as you put them on because you need to have the, the branches Ah, do you know what? This is such a sort of mixed picture. So a trim in the sense of having turkey and all the trimmings is directly related to a trim being any ornamental addition to the fabric of a dress, for example. So it could be a really lovely hemline or some beautiful sequins or whatever. Um, And from there, it came on to mean accessories or accompaniments, um, if you like. So that one's quite simple. When it comes to trimming or looking trim or whatever, and the idea of sort of being um, cutting something down, that is probably all related, but sort of a slightly strange, you know, branch off, I suppose. Because from the 16th century, trim really burst on the scene as a kind of multi-purpose word. And it could mean fitting out ships for sea. So maybe putting on all those accompaniments that we talked about. Preparing a candle wick for use. Now that again is fitting out a candle, but because we trim down a candle wick quite often, perhaps the idea of cutting down began to come into play then. It could mean repairing something and it could mean cutting away the unwanted parts of something. So it is all about putting something in order 
really, whether or not you are adding the last bits to your Christmas dinner or whether you're talking about a trim ship, which is well equipped and in good condition, hence a sort of slightly fit person is looking trim and so on. So we think it all goes back to the same idea of equipping in some way. But it's just very strange, as Craig points out, that in some cases we're adding and in other cases we're taking away. But that's the eccentricity of English. And I bet you do know, without having to look it up, which I did, what the origin of Craig is the first name of our correspondent, Craig Dealey. Craig, mm. it's Scottish. Yeah. Masculine name, Gaelic origins, as we know, and comes from the Gaelic word Craig, C-R-E-A-G, which translates as rock or rocky. I thought it might be related to Craig. That's interesting. Yeah. Not so that Craig has got a, a craggy face. It is. If you're, if you're strong. Anyway, thanks. Thanks for your question, Craig Dealey. Who's next? Oh, this is a lovely name. Ira. Ira. I'll, enjoy looking, I'll enjoy looking up Ira. For years, I thought Ira and George Gershwin were a husband and wife act, but I think they were brothers. Anyway, oh. I'll, I'll, dis- I'll discover that. Um, it's from Oklahoma. What a wonderful. Ira from Oklahoma has been in touch. And what is the question? Hello, Susie and Giles. Giles and Susie. This is Ira from Oklahoma. I love the podcast and have been a fan for a long time, but this is my first time writing in. I'd like to know about the word season and how it can mean something we put on our food and also the time of year. Are they connected at all and how? Mm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, Ira, thank you for that. So the the word season came to us from old French, as so often with the French terms that came into English. Ultimately, it began with Latin and a Latin term in this case, which meant sowing, as in sowing seeds. And from there, it developed the broader meaning of the time of sowing. So when we are sowing our crops, etc. And then the sense of adding savoury flavouring to a dish, as in seasoning it with pepper and salt or herbs or whatever, that goes back to the sort of primary sense in Old French, which is, you know, where, where it was before us, which was the lovely idea of making something palatable through the influence of the seasons. So in this case, the suggestion is that what was being added to um, to increase flavour was something that was seasonal at the time. So it was something that was readily available and then was added to a dish to make it more delicious. So it is adding taste from the influence of the seasons, which is quite lovely. Well, let me add something, which is what I now know about the name Ira. <laughs> uh, do you know much about the name Ira? No, uh, I hope it's not related is? to Ira as in Rath. No, Roth. it isn't. It's it's actually a gender-neutral name of Hebrew origins, oh. found in both the Torah and the Bible. It uh, translates as watchful and refers initially to one of King David's mighty warriors. That's Ira. And Ira came from Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I've ever told you this story. People find it hard to believe, but I promise you it's true. I went to see a play some years ago about Virginia Woolf. Yeah. And it was called Virginia. And it was written by, I think as well as starring, the great Dame Eileen Atkins, mm-hmm. who's an authority on Virginia Woolf. And I think she'd compiled the show from the letters and diaries of Virginia Woolf. Anyway, it was a, it was a marvellous piece of theatre. And my wife and I, we, we sat there uh, behind two Americans 
who left at the interval. They were so disappointed. They'd come to see Virginia, mm-hmm. assuming it was a musical and a possible sequel to Oklahoma, <laughs> the famous <laughs> musical written by Rodgers and Hammerstein. So they thought, oh, this is going to be a, another great musical. And they were sorely disappointed to find it was Virginia Woolf and not Oh, this a is wonderful... just like the story that we always tell about one of our live shows where we were in the Fortune Theatre in Covent Garden and we got to the end of part one of our <laughs> podcast that we were recording. And you can tell the rest of the story. No, but it's true. I it mean, is. somebody in the, was it the, they were upstairs. American they? gentleman, wasn't he? Yeah. And, and he was, you know, what, what's going on here? <laughs> he thought he'd come to see um, the woman in black, in black, which had been running there for sort of 20 years. <laughs> and he was went to, waiting for the, the mystery and the ghost story to begin. Instead, he had the pair of us <laughs> wittering on. That was really funny. We've got time for one more. We and must get one more. One we more must I would love more. to go to. And there is Please. no voice note, but it's from Julia Barrow. And I suppose it's a fairly dark one, but it, it's a nice piece of English history. She says, hello, Giles and Susie. To raise my spirits on a damp afternoon, I lit my fire pit outside and stood beside it with a glass of red wine. How lovely. A very effective therapy. And as I stood watching the smoke, I wondered about the origins of the word bonfire. Is it something to do with bones and cremation or the French word bon meaning good. I'd be interested to know at this appropriate time of year. Well, the answer, Julia, is that there is a folk etymology, so a sort of popular urban myth, if you like, that it has got something to do with bon, French for good. But actually, no, we are talking about bones here. We think Um, So the significance of bones in midsummer fires, which is when um, the idea of bonfires were first recorded, is a little bit unclear. But we do have records, for example, something that was noted in the New English Dictionary from 1887 under the entry for bonfire. It says, for the annual midsummer bonefire or bonfire in the burg of Howick, is it? Old bones were regularly collected and stored up. Um, up until the 19th century. So I think we're talking animal bones rather than the bones of heretics, etc. But the record suggests that they were involved in some of the early bonfires. So yeah, fairly grisly, but little fascinating snapshot into life centuries ago. And Julia Barrow, do you think the surname Barrow is because she her family came once upon a time from Barrow, Barrow in, in Furness, Furness? Possibly. Or, or because they made wheelbarrows? Uh, how do, I mean, Quite, how do one get Or she lived in a barrow, possibly. So she could it could be a topographical one where she sort of lived in a um, sort of valley. So we don't know. Leave that one with me, because I think there's a lot more to do with names, actually. Both We've explored names before. We should do it again. Because Julia, I, I do know this uh, without having to look it up. Julia, I think, means youthful, because it comes from nice. Jove's, Jove's child, Latin origins, youthful, Jove's child. And I think I'm right in saying that uh, it was a Roman name, particularly given to those born in the house of Julius Caesar. Yes, I'm sure that's true. And who was against July, of course. uh, Absolutely. Look, we've had so many more questions. We'll have to put these into later weeks. People will have to keep listening. Let's, um, let's just do it. I love these episodes. You know, I honestly could do one of these every week because it just takes us to so many different places. Not only yeah. the places of the purple people who are writing in, but also just in English. It just takes us on so many travels. Well, you take us to different places every week, and you have done for 250 weeks, with your <laughs> trio of words. And these yes. are words 
mean, how do you, do you collect them in a book yourself, or when you come when you come to think, oh, I've got to think of my trio for this week? Yes. Do they come into your head, or do you look them up, or do you have a notebook? Some of them come to my head, but you know what? I've got so many wonderful old glossaries and lexicons on my shelf that what I love doing most is just pulling one down randomly and just riffling through its pages and finding something. So it's a sort of potluck, but a, a lovely kind of potluck. Okay, so my first one is just just a nice word because it just. It almost sounds like the thing it describes. And it's a word or a verb meaning to bungle. And it's foozle. So if you get something wrong and you're, you know, you're you're a bit of a bungler, you might also be a foozler. So you just sort of foozle. But it's got that kind of affectionate edge to it, I think, which, which I quite like. The second one, I think people may well be familiar with already, but it's just quite a useful one to keep up your sleeve. And that's otios. Do you know what that one means? Otios, it means superfluous, not necessary. Yes, serving right? no useful purpose. And it's very pithy, which is why I like that one. So I just thought I would throw that one in. I love the way you assumed that I would know what Otios meant. <laughs> I said, you said, yes, I assume you know what this means, as if I've heard it so many times because people have used it about me. Oh. No, not at all. No, it's just, uh, it's, as I say, it's, it's, a kind of, it's not quite as obscure as many of the ones that I do. Uh, and the third one, again, it just sort of does what it says on the tin, but I quite like it. It's a tongue hero. And a tongue hero is a braggart. Or someone who considers themselves to be a hero. Oh. A tongue hero. In other words, you They know. do all the talking. Yeah, they do all the talking. And let's leave that one there. Yeah. Um, do you have a poem for us? I do. And I thought carefully about the poem because I've enjoyed reading so many of the poems and, and looking them up. And often I think of them during the episode. But for today, yeah. I wanted... I, I tried to think of the poems that people have enjoyed. And I know people seem to have enjoyed poems about cats, and you know you and I love cats. So I thought, let's do a cat poem. And I thought also people seem to have enjoyed, over the many months we've been doing this, poems about love. And I came across a poem that is, well, it begins as a cat poem, but it turns into a love poem. It's quite short. It's written by an American poet called James Lochlin. I think that's how you pronounce his surname. Uh, Born 1914, died 1997. He was a, a poet and a publisher. And this is the short poem. It's called, You Know How a Cat. And that's the first line as well. Mm -hmm. Let me read it to you. You know how a cat will bring a mouse it has caught and laid at your feet. So each morning I bring you the poem that I've written when I woke up in the night as my tribute to your beauty and a promise of my love. It's a sweet idea, isn't it? An analogy between the cat that you love bringing you the mouse to show it loves you to um, the poet writing a poem overnight to, um, uh, well, to salute your beauty and a promise of my love. It's beautiful. It's very tricky, I have to say. I I always need to hold on to that fact because when Bo, my cat, does very occasionally bring in a mouse, I actually get really cross with her because the mouse has become obviously her plaything and more often than not the mouse plays dead and then when Bo's gone away I just sort of shivvy out the door but I never I have to say I'm never grateful even though I'm sure her bringing it in is a sign of love it's not something I want to reciprocate I know but it's a natural thing for them to do isn't it yeah I suppose it is Oh, life is life is difficult. We don't want it to be, Susie. You and I want it to be. This is why I've totally... I, I mean, I know terrible things are happening in the world, but I don't know the detail because I've stopped reading the newspapers. Yeah. And uh, I can't watch, I can't watch the television anymore. It's too grim. It well, is. That's why we love 
spending time with the beautiful people who are the purple people and in the world of words. So thank you so much for being with us for, if you have been, all 250 episodes. If you joined more recently, they're all available. So please feel free to go back on them and we will keep going for as long as you keep listening. So, so thank you for being part of our story for these past five years. Um, and don't forget, you can find us on social media should you wish to, at Something Rhymes on Twitter and Facebook or at Something Rhymes With on Instagram. Um, there's also the Purple Plus Club where Giles and I are going right now to just chat a little bit more off the record, I suppose, about some of our favourite subjects. We're doing a long run at the moment of wit and wisdom from A to Z, choosing people who have contributed, we think, much to the, you know, to the pool of wit, um, not just to do with language, but just life in general. And I think we're going to talk about Barry Humphreys next. I'm really looking forward to that one. Oh, I hope we are. Yeah. One of the great entertainers. I think Barry Humphreys and Ken Dodd, are yes. the two funniest people I've seen live on a stage. Oh, really? Oh, so we'll we'll go through to the, the Purple Plus Club now. It's ad-free listening when you're there, but we love you listening here. And we actually, do. I rather like the ads, particularly when I'm reading them. Anyway, <laughs> Something Rhymes with Purple is a Sony music entertainment production. Maybe we need more music in the show. It was produced by Naya Deo, with additional production from Ollie Wilson, Charlie Murrell, Chris Skinner, Poppy Thompson, and... Ritz! The person who you said looked like one of those old games where you could migrate the hair, if you can use migrate in a in a that way, uh, to either the top or the bottom of the face, or indeed to the sides, and you decided that Richie, our lovely Richie, had all of those magnetic filings rushing down to the bottom of his face because he is very hirsute, not unlike Gully, actually. But uh, thank you, Richie. And uh, yeah, thank you for being at our helm. Long may it continue. Thank you, team. Thank you, listeners. This has been Something Rhymes with Purple, episode 250.